Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Gabe Kapler. Gabe had a 12-year career in the majors and was part of the Red Sox championship team in 2004. Gabe is currently an analyst for Fox Sports 1. You can give him a follow on Twitter, at Gabe Kapler. Gabe, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you, Ross. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat with you today. Well, Gabe, let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. My first inclination was to play Major League Baseball, and that started as a five-year-old. I, I can't remember wanting to do anything else. In fact, my first season of t-ball, it's all I could ever think about. And, and I often share with my, my boys, my 13 year and 11 year old boys how important it is to, to want that more than anything else because they both sort of have a- ambition to be NFL players and I talk about the importance of thinking about it and, and digesting it and, and eating and sleeping your sport at every turn and I think from a very young age um, from probably five years old on I, that's all I thought about up until the point I was in high school and it became more like a job. Were you playing other sports as a kid? Baseball was a year-round sport for me in Southern California. And at one point, uh, my, my varsity baseball coach was also uh, the football coach, and he asked if I want to participate. But it was the culture of Southern California. The baseball players played baseball year-round, and the football players sort of played football year-round. In fact, we only had one, ba- we only had one football baseball player on his team. His name was Deshaun Polk. He turned out to be a linebacker for the NFL uh, uh, Houston Texans. So other than that, all the baseball players sort of played year-round baseball and football players played year-round baseball, or excuse me, year-round football. And um, yeah, I was just, I was just a baseball guy all, all the way through 24 hours a day, seven days a week. A lot of five-year-old kids want to play professional baseball for a living. That's not uncommon. For you, it became a reality. But when did you realize that playing baseball was not something that was going to be a recreation for you, that it was something that you had a chance of playing professionally? You know what? I was completely naive, Ross, and that comes from, uh, again, back to those early days as a, a youth baseball player. I thought for sure I was going to play Major League Baseball all the way through. I had my doubts in high school because I just wasn't that big, strong, and fast. And so I doubted my ability to reach the major league level. And I dabbled in other things. I partied a little bit, uh, played around, and, and made a fool of myself from time to time. But all the way through, I think I, deep down in my heart, I wanted to play major league baseball and always thought that I could. Um, I certainly had my, my series of hurdles and obstacles. Uh, but there was never a time that I can remember that I didn't want to, to play major league baseball and think that I had the capability to do so. You were drafted by the Detroit Tigers in the 57th round of the 1995 draft. What was that day like for you? Uh, it was an interesting day because I, you know, when you're when you're the 57th round draft pick, um, no no general manager is calling you to share the news with you. Who does call you at that point? The scout that signs you. Um, and at that point, his name was Dennis Liebesall. He's a local area scout here in Southern California. And I think he he neglected to call me. I don't know what it was if if the information didn't relate to him in time. I didn't even realize that I had been drafted. And I was playing in a Southern California sort of college league uh, recreation game. And I hit a home run. And Dennis, Dennis was there. The scout was there. And, he, and I, I don't know if it, it reminded him or it sparked his memory. But he, he, had, he let me know at that point that I had been drafted. And 
oh yeah, by the way, you know, we're going to give you X amount of dollars to sign. It was a really small signing bonus. And did I want to go play? And I had plenty of eligibility. So I wasn't forced into making that decision. I had played one year of junior college baseball in Southern California. And so I had the ability to go back and play another year of Southern California junior college baseball and then potentially go on to a four-year school. But I was ready. I wanted to get out and play. And I was so naive. I thought that, you know, the 57th round draft pick had just as good a shot to make it to the major leagues as did the first round draft pick. I thought we were all thrown into a pool together and the best player would, would have the opportunities. I had no idea that being drafted higher meant having a longer leash and that being a 57th rounder meant being a roster filler. So I was naive to that and it's probably the best thing for me uh, because I didn't let that, that mindset creep in and become detrimental to my development. You played in the minors for a long time. You spent parts of three seasons alone in A-ball. What kept you motivated and what were your biggest obstacles to making the majors? Well, relative to uh, other minor league players, I actually spent a very, very short period of time in the minor leagues to the extent that I only played uh, my total minor league baseball time was three, three and a half years. And for a kid that was drafted as late as I was, you know, those guys are generally, if they, if they survive in the minor league, they, they stay there for, for quite a long time. So um, while I did play um, in hindsight, I played three years of A-ball. It was really short-season New York Penn League baseball, which is where college players get sent. Then long, one long season of low-A and one long season of high-A before advancing to double-A and, and jumping to the major leagues from there. But my journey through the minor leagues was an extraordinary learning experience. Uh, I learned about training and work ethic, and I learned about what it means to be a man on and off the field. Um, I wouldn't trade those days for anything. And in fact, the minor league lifestyle suited me just fine. I didn't, although I felt in a hurry to get to the major leagues uh, because I was excited about it, it, it wasn't because I couldn't handle the bus rides or, or the, the crappy hotels or anything along those lines. In fact, um, that lifestyle agreed with me just fine. I was, I was pretty capable of, of getting through that life and navigating it. Um, it just so happened that I wanted to get to the big leagues and, and perform at that level. How was coaching different in the minors compared to the majors? Uh, it, was, it was an extraordinary experience for me because just as much X's and O's um, and managing the baseball game, it was about um, dealing with players during their first experience in professional baseball. These kids were 19 years old, 20 years old. And mind you, I was only 31 myself or 30 years old myself, but I still had just the right perspective to offer about how those guys should treat coming to the ballpark every day, doing their own laundry, being in an apartment for the first time uh, away from home, and really really schooling them on, on their becoming men in the game of baseball. So um, I, I enjoyed that, that element of it, as, as did I, um, you know, learning about what the sacrifice bunt meant, the value of the out meant, and, um, you know, just managing the games in general was, was a great deal of fun. But I wouldn't trade anything for the experiences of dealing with personalities like, like Lars Anderson and Josh Reddick and, and Felix Dubron and, um, you know, Arjenes Diaz and some, some really quality individuals. On September 20th, 1998, you made your major league debut for the Tigers. Tell me about that day. The thing that jumps out at me, Ross, for, for 1998 and um, you know my first experience in the big leagues is seeing my number 23 old English D Detroit Tigers jersey hanging in that old wire locker at the old Tiger Stadium and just knowing that I was about to become part of history. Uh, I knew that the Tiger Stadium was going to be torn down in short order. I knew that I was going to play on the same hallowed ground as Ty Cobb and Al Kaline and Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker. 
Um, and I was just awed by the fact that I was going to be stepping into those shoes and play on that surface and be a part of history. So it was, it was seeing the locker room, seeing my jersey hanging there, um, certainly calling, uh, calling my family and letting them know that I'd been called up. Those are all moments that I'll never forget. In fact, I think from a player's perspective, if, if, if they tell you truthfully what's important to them, it's sharing the experiences of being a major league baseball player and uh, the triumphs that they experience with their family members and friends. Because without somebody to share it with, without somebody to call and tell, uh, hey, I, I just got called up to the big leagues or hey, I, just, you know, I just hit a home run or I just had a hitting streak, whatever it is that you share with your, your family members and close friends, without those people – um, and without that experience, you're sort of alone in it. And so it's really about sharing those spectacular experiences that we had as players with our family members and friends that make them special. Were there veterans on the Tigers that helped you transition from being a minor leaguer to a major leaguer? The guys that stand out for me, Ross, are, are Tony Clark, who was just an absolute uh, gentleman. Uh, Damian Easley was, was really special in helping me make that transition. And then some of the younger players like Brian Moeller and Frank Catalanato that had a, a little bit of experience during that time helping me make the transition. Those guys were, were um, instrumental in, in helping me make a smooth transition from the minor leagues to the major leagues. What adjustments did you feel like you had to make hitting-wise when you had to get called up? The biggest adjustments had to do with the, the defenders, and I think that's what surprised me the most. Whereas you hit a ground ball in the 5-4 five, five, hole or the 5-6 hole, and uh, the shortstop would gobble it up to his backhand side uh, on, on, on major league field. In the minor league, those balls are hits, and there's a ripple effect to the confidence um, level that you have going into the following game. And you, you get robbed of that. You hit a line drive um, you know, on the other side of the field with Ken Griffey Jr. stealing that line drive away from you. So that was the biggest adjustment, was just understanding that you know, hits are not necessarily hits anymore. Um, you know, it's going to be a little bit uh, tougher sledding. But pitching was, di- didn't seem to be that much um, more skilled, although there were some harder throwers and they might be hitting spots a little bit more. I didn't find the jump to be extraordinarily difficult to make uh, as it relates to the pitching. So, yeah, to me it was a defensive adjustment that was most surprising. What kind of adjustments do you make in-game from one at-bat to the next? when facing major league pitchers? I think the adjustments have a lot to do with understanding history. How did this pitcher uh, attack me the last time I saw him? And, and that was really a, a huge difference between the minor leagues and the major leagues is the amount of data at our fingertips. I, I remember being, um, you know, in all, actually all of the clubs that I played for and having just the advanced notes placed in front of me. This is the way this guy, um, you know, let's, let's say it's... it's um, C.C. Sabathia. Um, Whoever, CC Sabathia, Rick Helling, you know, whoever it was that you were about to go face, this is how he faces right-handed hitters like you, having that information at my fingertips for the very first time. Um, so you make those adjustments prior, prior to going into the game, and then, you know, you use your eyeballs to, to see what they're doing. You Rick Helling developed a cutter later in his career, and it was important to stay on the wall away a little bit more. Um, CC Sabathia's velocity dropped, so you're, you're paying, paying attention to what happens with, with uh, pitchers, and then you make adjustments accordingly. You mentioned being in the data age, information's available and on every player, every hitter, every ballpark. How does all of that information eventually trickle down to the players, and what kind of information is the most helpful to you as a player? Uh, the way it's presented is, is through the hitting coach generally, um, and sometimes you'll have a member of the front office that um, gives you a little bit more information that you have to work with. 
Um, it's it's really highly variable on on the organization itself and how they approach their players. I, I've been blessed over the years with great coaches, great staff members, managers, front office personnel, interns that have uh, presented me with a great deal of information, and it's my job to devour and digest that, that information then put it to practice, apply it during the games. Todd Walker came on yesterday, and we talked a bit about the Red Sox in 03. And I want to ask you about the Red Sox in 03 and 04. Tell me what you were thinking when Grady left Pedro on the mound in 03. I thought it was the right move. I watched Grady um, walk out to the mound, and I felt like Pedro was our our best option during that um, during that game. Um, he was he actually attacked the, the hitters and, and had success against them. Just so happened that they flared some balls off of him. Uh, I can see history uh, turning out very differently. Um, just if, if the fielders were positioned a little bit differently, not that he had the responsible, the responsibility of, of positioning them, but certainly, um, you know, he, he was, he was getting in on guys. I remember um, a Matsui ball that was hit to center field. He, he actually made a great pitch on it. Um, it wasn't the center. It might've been to right, but, the bat I'm thinking about, uh, Pedro made his pitch. He beat he beat the hitter, and you know there was a flare base hit. And and Grady, I thought, did a good job of sticking with the guy that um, gave us our best chance to win that day. The following year, of course, the Red Sox went on to win the World Series. And part of the clubhouse culture that that sort of has become public is that idiot culture and Johnny Damon and Kevin Millar. And how much does clubhouse chemistry actually? play a part into winning and losing? I think uh, good chemistry is immeasurably important. And I think that it's, you know, you look at the Red Sox this year and, and the players that they've brought in, they've brought them in particularly because of, of their winning attitude. Shane Victorino and, and Mike Napoli and Johnny Gomes have very endearing qualities that, that sort of uh, become the glue that brings players in the clubhouse together. And without those personalities, um, you there are oftentimes there's dissension um, and there's a divide in, in a clubhouse. It just doesn't lead to players pulling the rope in the same direction. I often point to the Tampa Bay Rays pitching staff this year and how they interact on Twitter. If Chris Archer has a bad game, Matt Moore and David Price are tweeting about how they're going to pick him up and how they can't wait to see him pitch uh, the next time out. Those are the types of environments that, that players thrive in. It's what makes Joe Madden so successful. It's what make, made Tito Francona so successful. And now John Farrell in Boston as well is, is nurturing and um, encouraging those types of winning environments. As a kid, everybody dreams about playing in the World Series, especially as you. You always wanted to be a major leaguer. I imagine you always wanted to play in the World Series, and you got that opportunity. Were you able to appreciate it then? Were you able to stand on the field and say, I'm playing in the World Series? Did you appreciate the moment at the time? Not as much as I would have liked to appreciate it. Looking back, um, I can remember running in off the field you know, in the ninth inning when we had just won, sprinting in from the outfield to get ready to jump onto the top of that pile with Pokey Reese and Kevin Millar and, and Jason Veritek and Manny Ramirez and thinking to myself, is this a movie? Is this really happening? Am I, am I watching something from the outside? It almost felt surreal. And I wish I could find a way uh, back in those days to just be in my body and be more... Um, momentarily aware of what was happening around me. It just felt so out of body, and I would have liked to have it had felt more present and grounded uh, during that experience and others throughout my career. You're listening to Gabe Kapler. You can give him a follow on Twitter, at Gabe Kapler. Gabe, you've been writing and tweeting a lot about your interest in sabermetrics. What triggered your interest in more advanced metrics? Uh, I had a moment where Ben Sherrington, who's now the general manager of the Red Sox, sent me a study on the value of the out 
um, as it related to the sacrifice bunt and the stolen base and, and how important it was to not give away outs on the bases. I think that opened up my mind that there's something that I hadn't thought about in great detail prior um, to that study that he sent me in 2006 or 2007. And since then, I've just been fascinated by looking at the game from a different perspective. Uh, look, RBIs and wins and losses and bat- batting average and some of these traditional metrics that we use – not that they don't have a place. Just, they just have more entertainment value than they do real, tangible, um, predictive value. And I think there are better metrics that we can use to predict what might happen in the future um, based on a, a player's performance. I, I often point to, to FIP, fielding independent pitching, which for a pitcher removes all of the variables that are out of the pitcher's control, such as uh, defensive play. So it focuses on the strikeout, the home run, and the walk. And it just is a, is a better uh, predictor of future performance than, let's say, ERA or even WHIP. Um, for me, personally, um, you're going to have a different uh, opinion when you talk to different people, but weighted on base average for me or, or WRC runs created are both much more valuable, well, incrementally than, than many statistics out there. Um, but in particular, like, like the RBI is so dependent on what's happening around the player. Were there runners on base for him to drive in? Um, is the sample size even large enough to look at? In other words, if a player has six RBIs over the course of the last six days. I mean, it really, really tells us nothing. But, um, you know, traditional analysts throw stuff like that out there all the time, and I find myself saying, so what? Like, who cares that a guy is hitting well with runners in scoring position over the course of 10 at-bats? It really teaches us nothing. We need much larger sample size. I always say in real estate, it's location, location, location. In baseball statistics, it's sample size, sample size, sample size. How do you think your playing career would be different if you knew then what you know now? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, I had some of that information towards the end of my career because the Tampa Bay Rays are an extraordinarily progressive organization in that they, um, they're, they're really helpful in, in, in helping us know what to look for. Uh, I had a, one, one guy in particular in Tampa, his name is Eric Neander, and he was instrumental in helping me understand how pitchers were attacking me and where my, my hot zones were. And I always thought I wanted to make the ball be up in the zone. And he opened my eyes to the fact that I actually should be hunting the ball down in the zone uh, because that's the, the, the pitch I'm doing most damage on, particularly against left-handed pitching. So um, those were very helpful tidbits for me. And, and that's one of the things that the Rays do so well from Andrew Friedman all the way on down is um, they put their players in positions to have success um, rather than just blindly writing a guy's name in the lineup. That was one of the things that struck me in the piece that ESPN the magazine did on Brandon McCarthy a few years ago when Brandon developed an interest in sabermetrics and wanted to change his pitching style around them. He was on his own. He didn't really have any coaches or players to help him out. And I wonder if how much of that is just the resistant to change, how much baseball is still, innovation is still trumped by tradition. A lot of things in baseball are still done the way they were in 1890, just because that's the way they were done in 1890. How does baseball as a sport embrace change and move past that sort of archaic mentality? Uh, I don't know. I don't think that there's an easy answer to breaking through tradition. I mean, I think it's a lot of education. It's a lot of open conversation. It's, a, it's about the leaders being the smart ones, because when the leaders are the old school dogmatic sort of stuck in the mud, you know, people tend to follow that. So if the strongest personality in the room suggests that we should be looking at wins and losses because you know that's really what matters at the end of the day 
um, you know, there's going to be a lot of followers of that, of that mindset. If the leader in the room is saying, look, guys, let's not, let's not look at wins and losses. Let's look at whatever metric we think is more valuable. Um, then I think there's going to be a lot of followers. It's a lot of it that has to do with charisma and leadership and who the person in the room is that, that's saying, um, you know, whatever it is he's saying. And I, I was thinking about instant replay recently and how people are still, well, what about the human element? And we want to see, you know, we, the, the umpires are part of the game. Well, yeah, they're part of the game, but do they really make the game better? And so if the person that's g- providing that information is strong enough, powerful enough, has enough charisma, then people will follow. But if it's, if it's just sort of repetitive nonsense, um, or uh, on the other side of the coin, if the person that's in suggesting change doesn't have that leadership gene, then it just sort of falls on deaf ears. I don't, I don't have a, a real answer to that question, Ross. I don't think it's, it's, it's that cut and dry. It's interesting. Is it just change that makes so many players hesitant to embrace advanced metrics? I think what it is, it's about work. It's, it's, it's laziness and work. So it's like, now nah, don't tell me anything new that's going to make me have to think or try something new or change my approach in any way. I'm very, very comfortable if everybody sort of stays, um, stays in the same lane that they're in right now. Uh, I think it has less to do with players and baseball men and baseball people and more to do with human beings. Human beings fear change because they're comfortable. They don't want to be uncomfortable. They don't want to work where they don't have to work. And they prefer to just, you know, they prefer the status quo. It's like you're sitting in a very, very comfortable chair. There might be a, a really comfortable chair on the other side of the room, but that means I have to get up and go sit in that chair and try it. And I don't want to get out of the comfortable one I'm in right now because I know it's comfortable. So that, I mean, it's really simple. It's, 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 human, it's human behavior and, and not as much about baseball. Gabe, you played in Japan for a bit. Tell me about how the game is different over there. Um, I would say how is, the difference, how is it not different over there? I, that would be my, my response to the question. It's, it's different in, in every possible way. Uh, the, the baseball, to start with, has a, a bit of a tackier feel to it than our baseball. The seams are a little bit different on the baseball. The ballparks are, re- are relatively – they're smaller by comparison, relatively speaking. Um, they play a less aggressive form of baseball. They, they don't um, – they try not to take, take infielders out on, with, with hard slides. If a player gets hit by a pitch, he might uh, bow to the pitcher, and the pitcher might bow back rather than sort of holding on to the machismo or the, the braggadocious behavior that sometimes goes along with, with hitting uh, an opposing player. Um, you could go on and on. One of the things that pops out to me is batting practice and the way the Japanese run batting practice. They do it with two cages on the field rather than one in sort of a rhythmic, rhythmic fashion, one batting practice pitcher releases the ball and then there's a whack and then the other batting practice pitcher is releasing the ball and the guy in the other tunnel is hitting it. They're very efficient. Um, they spend, they, their pitchers throw more balls in the bullpen. Their fielders take more ground balls. It's, it's, it's night and day. They're just different. It's like comparing apples to oranges. You wrote a piece recently on EEI.com on how American hitters could benefit from treating BP like Japanese hitters do. Tell me why. The thing that's most important to think about here is the fact that their batting practice pitchers are former pitchers that are paid good salaries just to throw batting practice. So you may have a pitcher jump on the mound, and he has the ability to throw you an 85-, 90-mile-an-hour fastball, spin you curveballs, sliders, and throw them for strikes, and, and very much simulate a game situation for their hitters. 
um, and they have the ability to repeat that experience. Our batting practice pitchers are coaches lobbing the balls at 40 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour, and we're just whacking the ball around the, ball, the ballpark. There is some value in that in the way we do batting practice. Uh, hitters tend to be more confident, but they're really it's, it's more difficult to work on something when you're getting uh, the essential equivalent of an underhand pitch that you could be doing in the cage. So um, from a standpoint of it being efficient, batting practice in the major leagues um, in the United States is inefficient. Batting practice in Japan is very efficient, and they have a much more game-like experience than we do here. You think hitters, American hitters and BP should be seeing sliders and change-ups and off-speed pitches as well? Um, I think it's variable based on player, but I think just the option to have that as a choice is valuable for an American hitter, yes. Gabe, you played your career in what's commonly referred to as the steroid era. Let's talk about PEDs for a little bit. When did you start to hear about players using? Um, I would say that as I ventured into the major leagues is when I started hearing whispers. The minor leagues, I can remember one player telling me about an experience that he had, um, and he was telling me how much farther that he was hitting the ball when he was using steroids early in his minor league career. Other than that, I don't know that I heard about it very often in the minor leagues, but the moment that I set foot in the major leagues and the Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire nonsense was flying around, um, I think that's, that's when the, the discussions became more prevalent. Um, and then they continued throughout my entire career and to this day. I mean, I think I've probably talked about that, that topic more than any other. You played on the Rangers in the early 2000s. Was there a different culture regarding PED use in Texas? No, not particularly. We had um, admitted steroid users in, in Ken Caminiti, who was not only a steroid abuser, but a drug abuser in general. I mean, he's, he's one of the greatest teammates I've ever had, and I loved, I loved Ken. And he was open about everything that, that he did. He kind of threw his whole lifestyle on the table. Um, we've had guys that were, were suspended in Alex Rodriguez and, and Rafael Palmero. Um, we had guys that were suspected of taking steroids all over, all over that team. To the extent that in 2000, HBO Real Sports came to sort of ambush our team. And they asked for volunteers. Who's willing to take a test right here, right now, on television, on camera? And I, I raised my hand, and I took that test really, really proud of that moment in my career um, when I was sort of surrounded by guys that were, were suspected of using steroids, and, and myself as well. I mean, I, I, I dealt with that speculation my whole career as well. So um, that's no new information. But I was really proud of that moment and the fact that it's documented because it's, it really it sort of sets me apart from the, the other guys on that team. By the way, it's no in indication that I didn't love the players on the team and the human beings. They're just the choices that they were making were different and, and didn't fall into my moral and ethical spectrum. Well, because of your physique, many have assumed that you've used. Does that bother you? Not at all. I mean, I, I, I've had different moments throughout my career where it has bothered me. Um, and, you know, I encourage anybody that may be listening to this podcast and, and you yourself too, Ross. I'm, I'm, I'm writing a piece on this very topic right now uh, for Baseball Perspectives. And I hope that as many listeners read it as possible because the association with body type um, is body type and, and steroid use or PED use in general is very similar to like a 1950s baseball scout or, or like, like you and I were discussing, which is that old school dogmatic belief system um, without much merit to it. If you look at the guys that have been suspended for steroid use, Belky Cabrera, soft body, Ryan Franklin, skinny body, Bartolo Colon, big, heavy, set body, and then some of the guys that were muscular, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, etc. 
um, you know, they're, they're all over the map. The body, si- the body types and sizes are all over the map. There are other indicators that make more sense to take a peek at. Um, and for me, it's, it's they're performance-based, right? You have uh, the natural decline of testosterone that occurs in your early 20s. And theoretically, you should be losing testosterone. And by the time you're in your you know, mid to late 30s, the hitters should be declining, theoretically. Um, pitchers should decline even a little bit earlier, you know, age 20, 26, 27. So if you watch a guy uh, performing at age 37 or 38 when he hasn't performed his whole career, you, you know, that, that may be an area to speculate. But at the same time, I don't have enough information. And here I am falling into the same trap of, of speculating as, as happened to me. Really what we need is, is more science. And we need, before we decide to, to, you know, shine a light on anybody publicly, we have to have more information. We should probably have a positive test and or an admission of guilt and or um, unequivocal anecdotal evidence that suggests that a player has been using you're someone that obviously has dedicated your life to health and nutrition and to working out. Many writers comment on steroids, and frankly, they don't know what they're talking about from a physical standpoint. I think there are times when we see a major leaguer add 20 pounds of muscle during the offseason, and we say, oh, he must have used. Is it possible to add 20 pounds of muscle in three months? Is that something that's possible without steroids? I think it, it's really dependent on when that muscle, that muscle mass is coming. If you, if you take a 19-year-old, 20-year-old kid who is, has developed late and the testosterone is finally coming, and that's sort of what happened with me. I never added 20 pounds of muscle in one off-season, but I certainly got much more muscular between ages like 19 and 20, 20 and 21, um, to the point where I peaked at maybe 23, 24, somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah, can a 20-year-old, 20, 21-year-old put on a whole bunch of muscle in an off-season? Absolutely, his hormones have arrived. But can a 35-year-old add 20 pounds of muscle in an off-season? That's a little bit more far-fetched. Um, so, again, am, am, I a, am I a scientist? No, I'm not a scientist. Do, have, I, have I read a lot on the topic? Yeah. So does that give me a real right to make any sort of, um, you know, put my flag in the, in the ground and say I'm absolutely right? No. But from my perspective, what happened to me, my own personal experience, and when I began to lose size and strength, which was in my, you know, my 24th and my 25th year, um, it has a lot to do with age and development, much more so than it does, you know, weight, weightlifting or, or food. How do you think the steroid era affected you? I think that it, it really is like that sliding door. Did you ever seen the movie Sliding Doors? I did. You know, you know, the theory behind Sliding Doors, where if you arrive at a train station just a moment too late and you miss your train um, and it takes off, you have an entirely different experience for the rest of your life than had you made that train. It's, it's very similar. Had I taken steroids at age 24 or 25 when my body began to decline, uh, it's possible that I would have made 20, 30, 40 million dollars more um, and maybe performed, you know, maybe run into more fame and fortune. But I would never trade any of that uh, for the ability to look my children in the eye and tell them, you know, do it like dad did versus don't do it like dad did. In other words, follow in my footsteps versus I made a whole bunch of mistakes. Don't do it like me. So I, I would never trade that. I'm really happy with my decision. And the, the fact that I can you know, now have this conversation and feel comfortable with it. Gabe, I want to ask you about some of your former teammates and contemporaries and get your impressions on them. Tell me a bit about Alex Rodriguez. Alex has been, in my, from my perspective, he's been disingenuous. He just hasn't been the person that, that he is. And so his teammates, um, his teammates, wonder you're like who, who is this guy really because 
you know, and it doesn't even seem like Alex really understands who he is. Um, he's, he's a guy that loves the history of the game. I remember him talking um, with a lot of fondness about, um, about baseball history and numbers and stats and who the best players were. Uh, those, are, those are anecdotes that, that stand out in my mind about Alex. News came out today that Rodriguez's camp may have leaked information in the Biogenesis case to the media to throw other players really under the bus. If that's true, how does he return to the clubhouse? It's always a difficult transition. I mean, I don't know who he threw under the bus. I haven't really read the the, import, the reports in their entirety. But, you know, he just – it's like one thing after another with Alex. And, and I feel like he's constantly trying to, to clear his name, and in doing so will do whatever it takes, including, you know, tearing – Carrying his teammates down, his former teammates, his current teammates, whatever, whatever it takes. But I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what's going on in the Yankees clubhouse, and I don't know if he indicated anybody um, in the Yankees clubhouse. I know Cervelli's name was was thrown about a bit. Um, gosh, you know, the best the best person to answer that question would be one of Alex's current teammates. How about another former Texas teammate, Pudge Rodriguez? Pudge was awesome. He was a, he was a great guy. Um, happy-go-lucky. One of the things that I remember about him is he hit a home run one day, um, absolutely obliterated the ball, um, you know, several rows back, came back in, in the dugout. Everybody was trying to get a little bit of intel on the pitcher. Pudge, what'd you hit? He said, I don't know. Um, he said, no, no, no. Like, you know, what'd you see? What'd you see? He's like, I don't know. And, and he, he meant it. He just, his mindset was, I want to be clear. I don't want to think if you want to go up and see the ball and hit the ball to the point that he really didn't even know what he was hitting. And, um, and that, that describes him beautifully. He was just, um, he's an extraordinary athlete, um, arguably one of the greatest catchers the game has ever seen, if not the greatest catcher the game has ever seen. And I, I liked him as a teammate. How about Larry Walker? Larry was as supportive as a teammate that I've ever had. He was one of the best outfielders that I've ever seen, had a beautiful throwing arm. When I played with him in Colorado, he was nearing the end of his career, and, and from a, a physical standpoint, he was, he was deteriorating, and he had a hard time staying healthy. But, you know, he, uh, I was a young player. He was the superstar, and he treated everybody equally, brought an incredible energy and demeanor to the ballpark every day. Um, extraordinarily knowledgeable and generous to boot. What was it like hitting in cores? For me, what stood out about hitting in cores is the balls that dropped in rather than the balls that cleared the fence. So, um, you know, you had outfielders playing so deep, so cognizant of the ball over their head that you get some hits that you might not get otherwise because they were breaking back on the ball when they should have been, um, you know, getting a good jump and coming in and taking a hit away from, from a hitter in front of them. Also, the ball scooted through the infield pretty good. And then once it hit the outfield, grass moved pretty good. So there's some, you know, it was generous as it relates to extra base hits. But the ballpark in Arlington for me was a better ballpark to hit home runs in. You know, and I've been in ballparks. Like I enjoyed hitting it in Tampa more than I enjoyed hitting in Coors. So a lot of it has to do with the player and, and his experience from a personal perspective. You never played with Barry Bonds, but what are your thoughts on him? I, my thoughts on Barry Bonds are that he had a, a career that should be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, he, offensively, you know, there were, he had seasons that were so head and shoulders above the rest of the world um, that they would make Miguel Cabrera look like, um, you know, sort of a, a pedestrian-level player. They, he, he, the rate at which he got on base, dominated at bats, and hit home runs, we, we just haven't seen um, so my thoughts on Barry are, you know, good that he put up remarkable numbers and dominated in the air like, like nobody else. And, 
you know, clearly we have some evidence that suggests that he had some help there. Would you put him in the Hall of Fame? No. Would you put anyone associated with PEDs in? No. I, I, if, if, it, if it was just about speculation, then yes. But anybody that served a suspension, anybody that was, um, that was a, na- a known steroid uh, user or PED user and either admitted it publicly or was indicted, um, brought up on criminal charges, anything along those lines, no, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't give them my Hall of Fame book. How do you think the sabermetric community can do a better job presenting its information? By finding, remember we talked about so charismatic, strong leaders. By finding the right guys that buy in, um, the guy that like comes to mind for me is Max Max Scherzer, and just using him as the poster child. Brandon McCarthy is another good example of guys that are out front and have talked about sabermetrics publicly and talked about advanced metrics publicly. Sam Fold is another good example, and using those guys as, as a mouthpiece. Um, educating them more so that they have a, um, their, their platform is stronger and then using them as the face of Sabermetric and maybe even paying them to do so. Tell me about coming to grips with retirement. You had wanted to be a baseball player your entire life. You played in the majors for 12 years. You won a World Series. How do you come to grips with no longer being able to play anymore? I don't have any issue with it for the most part. I, I, I can still feel what it feels like to put on spikes and to dig my feet into the dirt and to get into the batter's box. And I know what it feels like to dive into second base and skin up my arms and dive in the grass and, and have grass stains all over me. And I'll never forget that, but I don't have any issue with not being able to do that. Um, I made the decision in 2011 to stay home with my family because I, I placed more value on watching my 13-year-old and my 11-year-old grow up than I did chasing around a couple more years. So um, I'm very comfortable with that decision. Could I have gone and played in Cincinnati or Seattle um, as a Southern California kid? Probably. Uh, I just wasn't willing to travel six months out of the year and miss my kids growing up. My kids are downstairs watching uh, TV right now. I can go see them anytime I want. If I was in Seattle right now, I would be traveling to play the Rangers. So and that's, that's why I made that decision. I'm really pleased with it. You've been listening to Gabe Kapler. Gabe had a 12-year career in the majors and was part of the Red Sox championship team in 2004. He's currently an analyst for Fox Sports 1. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Gabe Kapler. Gabe, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Appreciate it, Ross. Thank you very much for having me.